Welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and I'm really happy to be here with Michelle Scott, who is an activist, a writer, formerly incarcerated, and actually part of the first PAC cohort. So we definitely want to talk about that. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you. So I understand that the governor commuted your sentence in 2018, and you were released. And I was sort of curious what your biggest adjustment was being on the outside. Wow, uh, definitely technology, because things have really changed. Uh, I came into prison in 1991 to serve my two life without possibility of parole sentences and was released 30 years later. And, you know, a lot has happened in 30 years. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely cell phones, uh, technology, right. airdrops, Ethernet, like all of these foreign things that um, were definitely not a part of my daily experience being incarcerated. And since stepping out over a year ago, uh, I definitely feel like I'm fast tracking and having to catch up to what is now like a George Jetson environment uh, that didn't exist back in 1991. Yeah, I know it's it's. As human beings, we have fundamentally changed the way that we communicate with each other. Mm. So and do you find that, are you comfortable with technology pretty much or still kind of figuring out what works for you or diving in and using everything? <laughs> I would say the few things that I, that I learned to use well, I'm comfortable with. The rest of it is a uh, constant source of, of stress and striving. So as an example, in just the past month, I've learned about doodle polls. I've, um, which, yeah, my first couple of Zooms, when they said, raise your hand, I physically raised my hand because I didn't know where the icon was on my screen to digitally raise my hand. Actually, we still, I still do that. You know, I'm an older person, but yeah, I still put my hand up sometimes. (laughs) We all do that. I actually was uh, in preparation once I knew I'd been found suitable by uh, by my parole commissioners and I knew I was going to be paroling. Mm-hmm. I started watching QVC and Home Shopping Network whenever they were doing episodes on like tech. So that way I could learn like what this stuff was. And believe it or not, I it allowed me to become somewhat familiar with terms and, you know, they would show the screens and where the, the ribbons were and what the icons look like. And that actually helped me a little bit. However, stepping out into the world, this is a very fast moving technology train. And so uh, catching up is something I do on a daily. And I also, every time I learn something, I feel like, wow, okay, so um, I'm getting this. It's not impossible. It just may take me a moment. Right. Watching what people buy and are selling on TV is actually an excellent re-entry strategy, I think. So you are a writer. Is that your main creative outlet or are there other things you do? There's a couple of things that I love to do that allow my creativity to express itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I, I discovered while still incarcerated was gardening oh. and landscaping. And at one point we had an arts and corrections program. Um, so I actually learned how to do ceramics. I was taking classes in how to, I made a sculpture piece using mixed media that was absolutely incredible. And then I decided, well, you know, here's a, a writing assignment from the California Coalition of Women's Prisons. And they um, actually sent us in survey sheets, like how have you been impacted by your life without parole sentence? 
And for the first time, I actually sat down and these questions challenged me to really think like, what had I lost as a a woman? Uh, What was my sense of self? Uh, Spiritually, how has this impacted me? My, My sense of my place in the world, my identity. And coming away from writing these things down, I realized first, just the incredible impact that being incarcerated presents. I realized there were things I wasn't grieving. And I also found like my voice. And but for taking that survey and answering those questions, I didn't realize I had so much to say. And then came opportunities to share my prison experience with places like the Marshall Project or Blue Sky Funders Forum. There was an article I was able to write for Elle magazine on what our experience was being locked inside with COVID rampaging. I mean, it was turning the outside world definitely inside out. But inside prisons, it was even much more intense because there is no social distancing in prison. And every, every day, the news seemed to indicate something new and terrible about this COVID virus. So finding that I had an avenue to let my words, you know, fly past the confines of my of where my body would be confined, but my my words were allowed to be free, and that is something I'm still pursuing: is educating and informing and sharing with people. This is what the experiences of somebody who's being incarcerated, whether they're doing three years, thirty years, or life without, our experiences are all the same. And um, prison doesn't have to be structured quite the way it is. Right. Yeah. When I was reading your article, I got a sense of how strong your voice is. And that was my first introduction to you. And so I was really excited to meet you. So how would you describe your creative process when you're doing something like that, when you're writing something like that? My first approach is I like to work in threes. I think what are the top three key aspects of this topic that I want to impart? And then I do basically freedom writing. I just, I write and I write and then I'll, I'll put it aside. Then I'll pick it up again look at what I'm writing, write a few more pages, and I'll start looking at the form and the structure and the flow of how I want the piece to go. And I also find value in, once I've written something, that so many emotions come up because writing about my incarcerated experience, memories flood back, my body reacts, emotions come up, a lot of memories to deal with. And so I have to give myself a little time out, a little self-care, and then go back to it and be able to look at it in a more, say, clinical or dispassionate way. Because ultimately, I really want my experience and what the experience of any human being who's incarcerated, I that's what I want to translate to help inform and educate people. Like, this is what human beings are experiencing in prison. And here's where it's unnecessary yeah. and where, as a society, we really need to stop and look at how we treat the most dispossessed class of human beings with indignity and mistreatment is a reflection of really who we are as a society. Right, right. And when people realize that the things and the treatment that happens inside of prison are not what your taxpayer dollars should be paying for, also to humanize the individuals there as well and give them a voice. Yeah, you definitely do that. When I was reading the L article, just the human connection is really direct and effective. And I think the most effective writers allow their readers to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes. Yes. And they're literally walking in your shoes. Yes. And you definitely did that. So I'm curious, do you have a similar process for creative outlets that are not with words? Or is that something different? It's, yeah, I think my approach to writing is is different than, say, ceramics. So since I've been out, I've been slowly 
stepping back into doing ceramics with the local art school here in town. And I've taken their six week ceramics classes and being back in the clay, it's like I hadn't touched it in almost, I think, 15 years. And so literally in the last five months, my body is remembering, oh, so this is what clay feels like. And and this is how I can roll a slab piece or like muscle memory comes back and ideas start to flow. And it's interesting because again, it's been 15 years. So it's like these memories come back of, oh, this is how I was doing this before. And always, as any artist will tell you, you have an idea in your head of what you want this piece to look like. And then, with, especially with clay, it decides what it wants to be. And you just got to go with it. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm a mixed media person, so I've not worked with clay, but I've watched videos. I taught a class where I showed my students a potter's wheel, a teacher actually teaching a class using a potter's wheel and forming this long sort of beautiful vase. And it was fascinating to watch, but I thought, I, I'm not sure I could ever have <laughs> that skill, but I guess it takes lots of practice. It does. Practice, practice, practice. So tell me a little bit what it was like to be part of the first prison arts collective cohort. Yes. So when when I saw a flyer up in the bulletin board in my day room and it said Prison Arts Collective, that they were coming in, they were looking for people to be part of their first cohort. And then explained very briefly, we'd be working with actual artists. There was a curriculum and that, you know, part of this process was to train those of us that were residing in prison how to turn around and facilitate not only art, but an art therapy themed um, curriculum. And sitting down with that first group, I was really excited because here were real artists. Like in prison, you don't get a lot of contact with what I call real human beings. It's either correctional staff or it's administrative staff. And there's a different kind of energy when we had what we call free world people or volunteers coming in and being looked at and treated as a human being. Sitting in that first circle, I wasn't being addressed as inmate Scott. I was being addressed as Michelle. And it was also definitely, they set a very collaborative mood. So it wasn't here, we're going to tell you what you have to do or what you will do, which is part of the daily prison experience. Instead, there was this open door and an invitation of, you know, here's what we're bringing and we're looking to see what you want to add to it. And then together, let's create something and we're going to create something that's going to continue and be carried through in the prison setting. So it was just incredible. Every week we would go, we would get our training. We worked sometimes on individual art projects and then they would have us work on a group project. And all of this was echoing what the format for Prison Arts Collective is in its totality. We also were, we worked on, I think it was a 13 to 14 week curriculum coming up with uh, art pieces to do and then also structuring within them talking points. So uh, one of the things we worked on is let's offer the group, if you were a superhero, you know, who are you as a superhero and what's your superpower? And so you could write it, you could paint it, you could do a decoupage. And then it was sharing, okay, here is what my superpower would be. And this is how I would use it in my life. What was your superpower? I believe my superpower was flying because anything that could get me over the walls <laughs> of the prison, being able to fly because the very condition of prison is you're confined and there's walls and there's concrete and there's metal fences and uh, everything is hard. Is. 
Do you remember the first thing that you made, like the first art piece or writing piece you made as part of the cohort? Do you still have it? Somewhere, I believe I do because I, I kept it. We were actually shown different um different pieces of other artist work that was to do with, it was more like graphic, like circular pieces, um, things that had rectangles, lines. It was, it was definitely very graphic. It wasn't, let's draw a tree. Right. It was more abstract than that. Very much abstract here, you know, choose the, choose three colors that you want to use for this piece and then have it tell a story with just the shapes. And so mine was kind of like a wavy line and then there were little, I don't know, kind Mm -hmm. of odd geometric shapes and and again with the color. And I found myself really looking at each of these pieces as what if this was a story of my life? And it started out here with darkness and hard edges and no hope and everything was small and constrained. And then now at the end of where I am in my life right now, things are more open and brighter and softer curves. And so it was a great piece for us to do because we were not only showing our artisticness and our colors said something about ourselves, but we also got to share in the group. Here's a little bit of my story. It's a wonderful exercise. I'm going to keep that one in mind, actually. So are there artists or writers that inspire you or have inspired you in the past? Reading and and reading books has been a way that I could escape a lot of childhood trauma. So my author, from James Missioner to Andre Norton to Ray Bradbury, nonfiction, Nelson, I mean, everything off the chart. I'm, I'm pretty much fluid as far as what authors I read. When it comes to art, I found that certain artists just grabbed my attention. So Vermeer, I don't know why, but there's something about his paintings. And I remember I once had, I think it was... Smithsonian magazine uh, that somebody gave me and inside was a little picture of one of his paintings and I cut it out Mm -hmm. and I put it in a little sheet protector and I would put it up uh, I think at my job assignment at that time in the prison I was doing clerical work somewhere and I put that little Mm -hmm. painting up near my my little desk and I would just gaze at it throughout Mm -hmm. the day it just something about it was calming and I would look at the brush strokes and the lighting you know in the linen folds of the woman's dress and I discovered uh, John Singer Sargent and his paintings, which were just incredible and, and rich. And then really became fascinated with the portraits of Lucy and Freud because they were so like raw. Mm. I mean, it wasn't about nakedness. It's like you're seeing yeah. like the naked soul of this person. And you're seeing the the inside of their head on the outside. Yeah, yeah. And at first I'm like, God, oh, he's really, you know, drawing like a lot of but the, the naked body, and then I realized, no, because that's not what I'm responding to. I'm responding to what these emotions and, and the personality that's coming through. And I would say, uh, when I grow up, I aspire to be Ah Weiwei. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that picture he did? of It's like a prison installation where he's, it's kind of like the view from his cell or the, from above, and he's looking down into the prison. It's like a, I guess, a life-size diorama or something. It's really Yeah. When I came across his dioramas he did when he was confined, I think the first time, I, I forget for how many months, by the Chinese government, and he did these little tiny dioramas in a box, and you peered through and you could see like he literally would be sleeping on a bunk or eating at this little table inside the cell, and they would have not one but two guards standing and watching him at all times. And I connected to that. So, I mean, it was so visceral when I saw that. I'm like, oh my, I know what this feels like because this is where I'm living. The guards may not have been inside and standing on either side of my bunk bed, but the way our rooms were constructed, 
there are these big windows everywhere. So the officers are walking by at all times and they're watching you at any, you know, if you're going to the bathroom, there's a bathroom pretty much in front of them, except for a little door or a shower or putting on your clothes or making a cup of coffee or brushing your teeth and guard will walk by and look in the window at you. And so I was struck that here he was able to translate his experience in a way that also you're peering into a box. It's like he was saying, I want you to peer in and see inside my mind what I experienced. So yeah, I find his work exceptionally inspiring. And I'm constantly thinking like, what would my experience look like if I were to run it through the similar structure? Yeah, format. Yeah. Yeah. How do you translate to somebody? Here's what it's like to be in a prison cell with six other people and no privacy and can maybe walk four or five steps and then the room is so small, that's it. Just what that would look like. Yeah. Right. Isn't there a unique quality of sound in the inside in terms of it's not silent? Isn't it sort of a constant soundscape? Absolutely. Yes. So if you've ever walked like in a parking lot and you're walking along and you can hear all the echoes on the concrete because everything's concrete and cinder blocks. So that's what the rooms are created out of. The floor is concrete. The walls are those cinder blocks that you use for like a retaining wall for a garden. Mm -hmm. So literally we're walled in. Right. So concrete and walls, metal bunks, metal lockers, so if you're sitting on your bunk and you you turn or you cough or even breathe, you can hear everything. You can hear the echoes of right. people walking down the hall. You can hear the sounds of people across the hall. You can hear the sounds of doors slamming in, in the officer station, in the day room. I mean, at all at all points, you are listening to every little piece that of life going on around you. You can't escape other people's experience. And that makes sense because all of the surfaces are so hard. So there's really nothing to absorb the sound, you know, mm-hmm. except your body and maybe yeah. your your bunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Once we're allowed to have fans, mm-hmm. we were able to have, I think it was eight inch fans, nine inch fans. We discovered the joy of white noise. Yes. So it wasn't uncommon that we would have at least one or two fans going on in a room and it would provide kind of a nice ambient white noise and mm-hmm. give the sense of at least auditory privacy. Yeah, I use white noise a lot in my creative and meditation practice. So I can tell you're definitely somebody who believes in the healing power of art for individuals, but I'm wondering if you think that it can heal some of the troubles and traumas we have today in society at large. Yeah, so something that struck me when I was still inside and everything was happening around George Floyd, Black Lives Movement was just starting off, and I remember seeing initially people were putting plywood covers over their their stores over their store windows and the people that were protesting were starting to spray paint or do paintings or or leave signs and I looked at it and I thought oh my gosh so not only is the plywood was put up as a barrier to protect these stores windows but to me it became a canvas for people to release here's my outrage here's my pain here here are my words here's what I'm experiencing here's how we honor George Floyd and others. And I remember thinking, if I was a museum, I would be snapping up those plywood boards and the signs because we need to have an exhibition because it was a voice and a a way for the emotions to be not only let out, 
for healing, but also for others to see, here's how my fellow citizen or my neighbor is reacting and having this experience of, of this extreme moment in our society. So um, the repurposing of the plywood barriers was just incredible. People didn't realize it, but that was art therapy. Yeah. And I think actually there was a museum. I think the Smithsonian actually preserved some of the protest art or however you want to call it in DC. So I think there is an archive, but it would be nice if there was an archive across the United States because that kind of expression was in a lot of different cities. So it'll be interesting to see maybe 10, 20 years from now, or maybe even less time, someone curates an exhibition. I would love to go to it. Absolutely. So you are currently teaching inside as a facilitator and instructor? Actually, I am not. Right now, I am sitting in as a restorative justice consultant for Mid-City Music Program. And so every Monday night, there's a guitar class, Second Chance, in San Diego. And I sit in there just to bring the group into awareness that, yes, you're here to learn guitar, but you're also here to have a moment where those things that are working in your life, I think some of them have the substance abuse issues they're working through, perhaps some placement, and they've been in and out of county jail. I, I think maybe one of the participants has been incarcerated. And so there's there's something about reaching out to people who are at a place like a turning point in their life and introducing them to something completely different than what they've been exposed to before to help them break out of that cycle of whatever addiction mm -hmm. or behaviors or lifestyles that isn't bringing them anywhere. And so it's interesting for me to sit in with a group of people that aren't currently and actively incarcerated because I noticed the conversation changed. But one thing is always true, and that is getting a group of people to sit down and for a moment drop that mask that we can often wear right. and be vulnerable and say, here's what was great about my last week and here's something that I was struggling with in my last week. So yeah. yeah, I think being out in the world makes us put on the mask to deal with the trauma. It's really hard to walk around and be vulnerable. So do you find, is that kind of the biggest change about being on the outside that you feel like you're safe showing that vulnerability? Or is there still an element where you're like, okay, I have this sort of set of, not, I don't want to say clothing, but it's like something I put on every day because I have to go out in the world. It's sort of new for me and there's new experiences. So, you know, I, I have a certain amount of armor. That's a great description of, you know, putting on clothing as like a, a mask and, and armor. I think my experience out here is realizing I was fortunate to have focused a lot of my time on taking self-help classes and working on myself, right? I, I definitely made a very conscious decision. I'm going to do something with my time. And I would take classes as a participant, and then I would turn around and facilitate those classes. And so what that gave me is an awareness that I'm now out in an environment where I'm with free people, right? But they're not free from understanding like their own triggers and they haven't had my training. So I, I have worked with individuals that were, they were triggered. They didn't know how to process. They didn't know how to conflict management. They did not know how to communicate. And so I have found myself slipping into facilitator mode and bringing about, shall we say, conflict resolution techniques and, and realizing that they don't realize it, but I'm helping you figure out how to deal with this moment. So when that happens, I feel like I'm being of service. It's like I, I get to take this skill set and I was utilizing it and helping it with my with my community and my prison family inside. And now I'm out here and I get to do it as well. So I, I carry 
a sense of responsibility that I'm not here to understand and bridge to what other people are experiencing. I can't stop and every person I meet say, hi, I just came out of prison after 30 years and you need to understand where I'm coming from. That is not the conversation. I will say, I think you are in a unique position to understand some aspects of American society right now, post-COVID, because it seems like a lot of us are having difficulty just being around each other in the world. And Mm. since you have been sequestered away for a long sort of stretch of time, you know that shift because it seems in in your work a lot, you shift position, you take the class and then you facilitate the class. And so you're actually switching positions inside, outside kind of on a regular basis. So you get to see what it's like on both sides. And I feel like even though you don't want to necessarily go around depleting yourself by healing everyone, (laughs) because that's exhausting too, your perspective on being sequestered and then release may be really valuable for people that are having pain now that we're around each other more because COVID is theoretically waning. That is such an amazing observation. And listening to you share that, I what came up for me was, you know, in prison, there are unwritten rules of, of hierarchies, of prison politics, of posturing, all to create like a safe space and a barrier and for one's survival. Out here, I have definitely seen the use of cell phones to create a barrier to intimacy or real real discussions is is something I'm aware of. And because people were closed off, they don't know how to talk to one another because they immediately step into their event, right? And you cannot reason with unreasonableness. And when somebody believes that they are truly right, their core belief system is, I am completely right in this moment. And then the other person they're dealing with also has that core belief, I am completely right in this moment. And I've noticed they lack the capacity to step back and say, okay, what is really the big picture here? And do I really have to win. Is this really the hill you want to die on? I don't see people taking that pause. (laughs) Yeah, but sometimes when they're at their most upset, you can actually see their pain. Yes. I'm scared and I don't know what to do. So I'm putting this aggressive, angry energy out there because I want to keep my fellow human beings at bay and just get through this moment and then leave or something. But it's, yeah, it's amazing. You can see all the different levels of their humanity and sometimes you can step into that. And I think for a lot of us, human beings are not designed to go for long periods of time without being touched by another human being. And I think that was the source of a lot of the suffering for people who weren't quarantined with someone or living with somebody every day. Mm. Yeah, it was, we just needed to touch one another like <laughs> physically in some cases. But, you know, obviously you can't go around doing that. So like, I'm a healer, so I'm going to touch you. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. Like we were created to be social creatures, to be connected to a family unit, to have interactions, right? I think they say that a hug releases oxytocins and other, you know, feel good, positive, you know, hormones. And so when you are telling people you have to keep six feet, there's not a lot of hugs going on. Right. And I remember one time I did that with somebody who was upset in public and I just instinctively put my hand on their shoulder and it was like mm. everything kind of shifted yes. and calmed down. And I was like, whoa, what, what happened there? <laughs> that was weird. 
Yeah. So I just want to say it's been so nice talking with you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And the only question I want to ask, as you know, our podcast is broadcast inside of different correctional institutions in California. So I always ask my artists that I interview, what would be your message or advice to somebody who is inside and maybe feels that they have something to say or communicate or have an element of creativity, but they're not really sure how to bring it out there? Wow. Well, I just have to say on the site, I'm actually part of a group that is working on a curriculum. It's with Pen America. They wrote a book, The Sentences That Create Us. And we're working on a, a curriculum for freedom writers, for individuals who are in prison and want to find their voice and be able to share it. And so we're actively meeting now working on that curriculum. So I, I, I love your question because one of the first things I would say is allowing yourself to take a piece of paper and just sit there and for 10 minutes, just write out everything that you're feeling, you're thinking, you're going through, you're worried about, you're happy about, you're stressed about, and put that down and put it to the side and then wait a couple days and go back and look at it and acknowledge here is here is what is going on in your life and your time. And here are the things that identify the things that you can do something about, look at the things that you currently can't do anything about and find a way to be kind to yourself and give yourself some self-care and self-love and acknowledge that it's hard and difficult to be incarcerated, right? And that experience embeds itself. And we as individuals have to find a way to nurture and and be kind to ourselves because you're not going to find it within the prison setting. Prison is not set up to be nurturing or empathetic or to be a positive experience. And so to not be defined by your experience, we have to find that little inner strength to say, you know what, today I'm going to choose to love myself and be kind to myself and not be so hard on myself because I have value. And being able to sit down and write a piece like that, and again, put it off to the side and look at it when you're a little clearer. It's a way to passively take a look at ourselves without, and it's a private moment as well. I want to say that this is a private moment. When you're done, you can always tear it up and just flush it down the toilet. But yeah, that would be my best advice because those are the moments when I did my freedom writing those are the moments that I really allowed myself to express in the rawest, realest terms. Here is what I'm struggling with and what I'm suffering with right in this moment. And being able to unleash it on that piece of paper was restorative in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And that would be my initial advice for my family and my community that is still incarcerated. Thank you so much. That was lovely and meaningful. Just be kind to yourself and love yourself is advice that actually I think we all can benefit from. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. It's been lovely speaking with you and I'm excited for you on your journey and I really wish you well. And and if you want to come back and talk to us again more about it, we'd love to have you. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate this opportunity. And I'm also excited that this is going to be going back into, again, my, my prison community because I never forget how fortunate and lucky I am out here. And being able to reach back in some way to encourage that community is something that I'm, I'm very adamant about. So thank you for that opportunity. You're welcome. Thanks again. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by the Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at Cal Poly Humboldt and at three CSU campuses, 
San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.